Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later, we're going to have a conversation with the only person who has won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary about the auto industry. Dan Neal is an auto columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's in town uh, covering the North American International Auto Show and stopped by to chat with us about what he's seen that's pretty cool and what's going on in the industry uh, that he is taking note of. So you'll want to stay tuned for that about half through halfway through the program today. Up front, though, in a little more than a week, we'll have a new president and a new administration. President-elect Donald Trump and some of his picks for top positions in the executive branch have sparked a lot of questions and a lot of concerns about civil liberties in this country. Could America become a country that imposes a religious test for immigrants? How will the administration treat people with disabilities? Our next guest is one of the foremost civil liberties defenders uh, in the country. Alan Dershowitz joins me now. He's an emeritus professor at Harvard Law School and an author. Alan, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to being in Detroit next week. And That's right. I, I love the city, particularly when it's not snowing and sleeting. <laughs> no promises there. It's, it's uh-huh. January. It could Anything could happen. Uh, as you mentioned, you will be here in Detroit uh, next week, next Thursday, January 19th, 7.15 p.m. at Temple Beth El in Bloomfield Hills. Uh, the event title is Looking Ahead. What do the next four years mean for American Jews and our relationship with Israel, uh, let's start. Let's start there uh, and talk about what it is you see coming for American-Israeli relations, given the election of Donald Trump, but also uh, some of the things we heard this week from Rex Tillerson, who is uh, whose confirmation hearings are underway in Washington. Uh, the subject, of course, came up there as well. What 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 is your read uh, on what we'll see here? Well, the one thing that's clear about the Trump administration is that its actions are utterly unpredictable. <laughs> we just can't know for sure. Yeah. There is no long history of policy. You know, when you elect a Democrat, whether it be uh, Obama or, or Clinton, you essentially know what you're getting. You're getting opposition to the settlements. You're getting opposition to Netanyahu. You're getting support for Israel's military actions. You're getting a mixed a mixed approach to uh, Iran and its nuclear program. It may not be the best thing that uh, Israelis want, but at least they know what they're getting. Right. With uh, President-elect Trump, it's very difficult to know. Uh, he said he'll be the most strongly supportive president uh, for Israel. And by the way, a book by Dennis Ross shows that when presidents are very supportive of Israel, Israel is more likely to make concessions, more likely to offer peace prospects. Uh, Dennis Ross goes through each president from Truman on and documents that those administrations that have been strongly supportive of Israel have gotten Israel to do more, and those who have been less supportive have gotten Israel to do little or nothing. And, of course, the pressure on the Palestinians has decreased now with the U.N. resolution. They have been disincentivized from coming to the table, already there's an open offer from Netanyahu, to negotiate with no preconditions. They haven't accepted it. And now the Palestinians are saying to themselves, why do we need to have compromises? Why do we need to give up the right of return? Why do we need to have uh, a Jewish capital in Jerusalem or recognize Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people? We're going to get a state from the United Nations. We're going to get it from France, from the uh, event that's going on there. We're going to get it from John Kerry's speech. It actually hurts the peace process when the Palestinians who have been 
unwilling to accept peace offers in 2000 or 2008 are now told they don't have to compromise. So I think we can only see some improvement in the relationship between the United States and Israel, but it's it's speculative. Well, uh, you, you talk about uh, uncertainty, and it seems to me that uncertainty and instability sort of go hand in hand. Uh, this idea that you don't know what he's going to do, and that uh, more more importantly, some of the things that he says he may not either really mean uh, that he intends to do, or he may not be able to do. Uh, do you worry that uh, he is either over-promising uh, with regard to Israel, or that uh, he's talking about things he doesn't fully understand and will get into the job and, and see that, well, I can't do that anyway? Well, every president overpromises when it comes <laughs> to Israel. They all promise to move the embassy to um, Jerusalem, they promise many things. But I, I want to focus on one word that you said in your question, because I think it's, it's a brilliant and it's really, really what's, what's troubling in the world today, and that is instability. We're seeing increasing instability in the Middle East. Um, you know, when Obama came to power eight years ago, there was a stable Egypt under Mubarak. Um, there was a relatively stable Syria under a terrible, terrible dictator. Yeah. Um, even years earlier, there was a stable Iraq. When, when Bush was president, under a horrible Saddam Hussein. And what we've done in the last 16 years is we've uh, eliminated stability because we don't like tyrants. Who likes a tyrant? They're undemocratic. But they're undemocratic largely for their own people. And we've substituted instability and terrorism for stability and tyranny. And I'm not sure we've come up the better for that. Yeah. We should have learned that lesson from Iran back um, you know, 35 years ago or more when we helped basically get rid of the very tyrannical but very stabilizing Shah, and what we got instead was the Ayatollahs. And now we have in Syria instability, Lebanon, we have Hezbollah controlling it, instability. We have instability in Egypt that was only overcome by a coup, which the United States opposed. We have instability in Libya. We have instability in Turkey. So the Middle East is a very, very unstable place. And so... Predictability and instability don't always go hand in hand. Right. Sometimes you have predictability, which we had with Obama, but it still produced but it's still unstable. because what was predictable was he supported democracy. That's a good thing. But when you support democracy in an area not used to democracy, and what you get instead is the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and other tyrannical organizations, that's not an end game. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting point to make that that we've traded. Uh, predictability for um, uh, for that instability. You know, when when the Arab Spring took place uh, and we saw this this new kind of tumult uh, in the region that that, that seemed to have uh, a democratic impetus, small d democratic mm -hmm. impetus. Uh, you know, I, I think the hope was that long term, what you would see was emerging democracies that would be better. Uh, partners uh, with the U.S. and with Israel, in fact, uh, in in sort of pushing for uh, just outcomes and liberties and equality and things like that. And we haven't seen that yet, of course. I mean, they are, they are really mm -hmm. struggling with that. But do you think that this is just part of the process of forming uh, democracies? I mean, is this is this sort of an early uh, an early iteration of uh, a democratic impulse that will mature over time and that we will get to the space where we well, see democratic Egypt or Syria or Libya and it's a it's a much more stable 
uh, environment. Well, interestingly enough, uh, yes, I think that's right. That's the hope. Interestingly enough, the country that has the best hope for introducing democracy is Iran. Iran, when you do polls among the people, if you can do them honestly, you see this much greater secular democratic impulse <clears throat> in Iran. I think the same thing is true in, in Turkey. Uh, apparently less so in places like Syria and Egypt. Um, but the hope is always there. Uh, and the goal is uh, real democracy. As Anatoly Sharansky has written in his book about democracy, democracy is not a one-day voting. There was democracy in Egypt for a day. And they voted in the Muslim Brotherhood, right. which proceeded to end democracy and impose a kind of religious tyranny. And then there was the coup, which was undemocratic, which <laughs> resulted in somewhat greater freedoms, not particularly great, but somewhat greater freedoms. So it varies country by country, region by region. We saw the same thing happen with the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, the immediate impulse was democracy in some areas, yes. the Czech Republic. Yes. Great democracy, wonderful um, Poland, yeah, in the beginning, but there's a movement backward. Hungary, very much of a movement backward toward authoritarian right-wing uh, tyranny. And so every region of the world and every country has different hopes and promises for democracy. That doesn't mean we should give up on our hope, but we should be very realistic about what we're getting when we topple tyrannical, authoritarian, secular, domestic terror people and instead get international terrorism, uh, religiously inspired terrorism, it's not a good trade-off. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is uh, Alan Dershowitz, the famed lawyer and American constitutional scholar. He's an emeritus professor at Harvard Law School and an author. He is going to be in town next week, uh, Thursday, January 19th, 7.15 p.m. at Temple Beth L in Bloomfield Hills for a talk that's titled Looking Ahead, What Do the Next Four Years Mean for American Jews and Our Relationship with Israel? It is an event that is open to the public, but you need to go and uh, pre-register uh, for that event. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, we're talking uh, about Israel, uh, the relationship between America and Israel, how it will look over the next four years, also the relationship with uh, between Israel and other uh, countries in the Middle East, the relationship between the United States and those countries. Uh, we're also going to talk about civil liberties uh, and what that will look like, what civil liberties will be like uh, in the country under Donald Trump. Uh, you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, we'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Steve in Southfield. Steve. Good morning, Mr. Today. Henderson and Mr. Dershowitz. Hey. Hi, Steve. How are you? Go ahead. Uh, what a timely topic. I have so much to say, but I'll, I'll try and, <laughs> and, uh, and summarize. I think the nation's civil liberties are going to be under attack for the next four years and hopefully not for the next eight. I mean, this guy has already signaled what's in store for Americans. For instance, um, in the first place, he needs a tutorial on what executive power is. And I'm sure he doesn't even know what the three branches of government are and what their limitations are. But he said things like uh, magnanimously after he won the election, he said, well, I'm not going to lock Henry, uh, Hillary up and 
all his supporters breathed a sigh of relief because they probably think he had the power to do that. And the thing that really galls me, I'm a, a disabled veteran, 12-year veteran special ops in the Navy. Uh-huh. And when he says things like flag burners are going to have their citizenship stripped and uh-huh. thrown in prison, it just infuriates yeah. me because I swore an oath to defend and support my constitution and made great sacrifices. Yeah. So, so, you know, stand you by make a great for high seas and heavy rolls. Yeah. Uh, Steve, make, thanks make very much. Point. Thanks very much for that call yeah. uh, and, and for sharing uh, what I think are pretty common uh, apprehensions, yeah. at least, yeah. if not outright fears uh, about uh, Donald Trump. Alan Dershowitz, uh, well, what do you make of, uh, of well, the things first, that he's saying? Yeah. Go ahead. Let me thank you, Steve, for your service to the country and your great sacrifice. You know, the country is built on the back of people like you who are willing to sacrifice uh, life and limb to protect our liberties. And I agree with you. What you fought for was to protect the right of terrible people to do terrible things like burning the flag. Um, uh, we all, as Justice Brennan, who was a very close friend of mine mm-hmm. years ago, one of the mm-hmm. great liberal justices, he once said, if I saw somebody burning the American flag, I'd punch him in the mouth. He was 80 years old when he said it. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't arrest him. And that's maybe the difference. I mean, we're entitled to hate people who hate America, but we're not entitled to use the law against them. And, of course, the president should know that no American citizen can lose his citizenship uh, if you're a natural-born citizen, can lose your citizenship just based on uh, criminal conviction. Right. <clears throat> uh, Chief Justice Warren, uh, Earl Warren wrote that in a decision back almost 50 years ago. Um, if you <coughs> excuse me, obtained your citizenship by fraud, you can have it removed, but if you were born a citizen, that's the end of the matter. And the Supreme Court has held over and over again that we can't make it a crime to burn the flag. Right. And I do think that we have to fight back against an assault on civil liberties, but we're ready for the fight. We fought it <clears throat> through many, many administrations. I'm old enough to remember, of course, when Ronald Reagan was elected. Yeah. A lot of liberal Democrats like me thought the world was coming to an end, <laughs> and we'd have to fight back, and there were some setbacks yeah. in yeah. civil liberties. But we fought the pendulum swings in this country, <clears throat> and generally it swings in the arc of justice. You know, it, it does, and, and certainly in the long term that has, has borne out. Uh, I think people are more concerned about the short term. One of the things, though, I think that could be very interesting and that, that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about is what role – the Supreme Court will play under a Trump mm-hmm. administration. And I think that's going to surprise me. I covered the court uh, from 2003 to 2007. Uh, and and uh, my, you know, there's a whole different gang there really now than, than when I was there. But uh, my memory of some of these folks is that, uh, you know, they will likely want to rein in some of the excesses that Donald Trump has already talked about. I mean, uh, you, you think of... Uh, this this idea of a, a religious test for immigrants, for instance, uh, I mean, I, I don't think that lasts very long in in any federal mm-hmm. court. And if it got to the Supreme Court, it'd be it'd be a pretty uh, widely decried policy. I mean, I think people are worried about who he will appoint. I, I, I imagine to the court, and that makes some sense. But the court that we have now, even if you just replaced. Uh, Justice Scalia with a deeply conservative new justice, I don't know, you you don't change the balance there. And I think this is a court that has been moving on some important issues uh, further to the left anyway. Well, it's it's mixed. Um, You know, people don't realize that Justice Scalia 
was the criminal defense attorney's best friend. That's right. That's right. He wrote more opinions involving the right of confrontation, the right of trial by jury, the kinds of things that aren't popular with the public because they result often in the release of guilty defendants. But he was out there defending the right of uh, the most downtrodden. I hope if he's replaced by a conservative, he is replaced by a principled by civil libertarian, right. reason-limited yeah. government yeah. Uh, in that way. Uh, you know, when you pick a justice, you're picking somebody for a long period of time. You don't know how they're going to evolve. You don't know what they're going to turn into. When you look at uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, who was picked to replace Bork yeah. and was thought to be a reliable conservative, and he has led the campaign for equality for gays and transgenders and others as well. And uh, one hopes that uh, service on the Supreme Court brings a sense of obligation to the justice sure. to really understand what the Constitution was intended to to protect. And they learn and they change over time. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the more mm-hmm. time you're there and the more you see, I sort of feel like there is a, a leavening that, that has nothing to do with politics per se, but, but has to do with uh, the Constitution and and their view of it uh, that that it and, changes. And it depends on the case. If yeah. you get a case like Bush versus Gore, all bets are off. <laughs> right. Republicans right. vote like Republicans, <laughs> Democrats vote like Democrats, yeah. and you don't get a real Supreme Court uh, 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 principle decision. You get justices voting twice: <laughs> once on election day and once on the day when they decide who's going to be the president. That's right. So it really depends on the nature of the case, yeah. and uh, the more abstract the case, uh, the more likely it is that justices will apply principle decision making, and the more concrete and immediate, the more they're likely to go to their impulses, their instincts, their party loyalties, etc. Yeah. Uh, All right. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Alan Dershowitz, uh, American lawyer and legal scholar. And we'll take more of your calls. 313-577-1019 is the number. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Music. News. Community. Culture. Local. Global. Detroit. This is... 1019 WDET. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for being here. My guest is Alan Dershowitz, emeritus professor at Harvard Law School and author, uh, constitutional scholar. He's going to be in town here in Detroit next week, Thursday, January 19th, 7.15 p.m. at Temple Bethel in Bloomfield Hills for a talk that's titled Looking Ahead, What Do the Next Four Years Mean for American Jews and Our Relationship with Israel? It is an event that is open to the public, but you do need to pre-register. We're talking about Israel and the United States. We're talking about the Middle East and the United States. And we've been talking about civil liberties. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. Also, go to the WDT Facebook page and put your comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Herb in Northville. Herb, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, can you hear me? Yep, I can. Good. A um, couple, couple of things. One, uh, Professor Gershwood briefly touched on you know the concept of the of the right of return, and I'm forgive my ignorance, but how is that even still a thing since that since the 
state of Israel was created 59 years ago, aren't most of those first generation pretty much dead by now? And the second yes. different is that um, there was in the talk about a religious test or religious you know, litmus test for immigrants. Uh, how does that square with the Hobby Lobby decision? One of which the element of was that the Supreme Court basically said there is no way to judge the sincerity of any stated religious belief, no matter how outlandish. Wow. Thank you. Great question, Herb. Uh, uh, Alan Dershowitz, go ahead. Well, first of all, the right of return is one of the phoniest rights ever. Uh, we're talking about uh, 700,000 people who left uh, what was Israel because Israel was attacked by all the surrounding Arab neighbors. Israel was prepared to accept 700,000 uh, Arabs and, and really live together. They now have a million point two Arabs, but uh, 700,000 of them left, some on their own, some because they were promised that they would return victoriously after a genocidal war against uh, the nation-state of the Jewish people, and some were expelled. At the same time, 700,000 people were basically kicked out of Arab countries, Jews, who had lived there for 3,000 years. Uh, last night I saw the opera uh, Nabucco, and Nabucco wow, one of my favorites. the story of the Babylonian, <laughs> yeah. right, the Babylonian exile, where Jews lived in Jerusalem in you know, 500 B.C., and they were exiled from there. And uh, In the opera, it has a happy ending. They come back in real life. It took them 2,000 years to come back. Right. But uh, the right of return, uh, even people like Noam Chomsky have said to the Palestinians, forget about it. You know, everybody's dead now who left in, in 48. Uh, we're not uh, going to, uh, uh, the world's not going to invite back uh, uh, 4 million descendants, second cousins, nephews, nieces, who have never set foot in Israel. Um, look at what happened in uh, Czechoslovakia after the Second World War. Three million ethnic Germans were made to leave the Sudetenland, where they had lived for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, things change. Uh, when India broke up with Pakistan, millions of refugees were caused. But the Palestinians are the only group that claim that their descendants have a right to return. So I think that should be taken off the table. It's a major barrier to peace. Uh, it's what caused Arafat uh, to, to, to reject the, the very generous peace offer that was made by President uh, well, Bill Clinton let me, and, 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 and Ehud Barak. Yeah, let me, let me push back a little there. I mean, isn't sure. this about a larger concept, which is uh, the idea of... Um, of shared uh, uh, ownership of, of of this land, that they have as much right to uh, the land that's that's in dispute as as anybody else. I mean, is I, I don't think anybody believes, for instance, that those original uh, people who were who were sent away could come back. Most of them um, are are not around even anymore. But but uh, the idea is that this is. This is their land as well, and this was—I mean, it's a—it's a sort of uh, nod toward sort of acknowledging an injustice. Well, the point, of course, is that there was a mandate, and it was divided by the UN in 1947 right. into two areas: one for a nation state for the Jewish people, one a nation state for the Arab people. The Jews accepted it; um, that was to be their land. The Arabs rejected it, and. The entire West Bank and Gaza were occupied for 20 years by Jordan and Egypt, respectively. Right. That's the way the division was supposed to work. Now, the Palestinians claim they want a state on the West Bank with no Jews, no Israelis, and the Israelis say they want their state uh, where it is, um, and it will include a million point two Arabs demographically growing very quickly. So 
already there is a state which is shared between uh, Jewish residents and Arab residents, but it's the nation-state of the Jewish people, much like a Palestinian state would be the nation-state of the Palestinian people. So that's the way the division was supposed to occur, not bringing back 700,000 people who could have stayed had they chosen to, had their leaders not attacked Israel. By the way, 1% of the Israeli civilian population died in that war. 1%, one out of every 100 Israelis died in the War of Independence, many of them Holocaust survivors, and that was a completely unlawful war. The Jordanians then illegally captured uh, the Jewish Jerusalem, the Jewish Quarter, uh, Mount Scopus, uh, Hebrew University, uh, Hadassah Hospital, the, the Holy Western Wall, and Israel recaptured it in 67, and now the U.N. is saying, that's occupied territory. That's absurd. That was always supposed to be uh, Jewish territory, but the Jordanians illegally captured it. The U.N. never said anything when they illegally occupied it for 20 years, and now they're claiming that Israel doesn't have any right to the Western Wall. It's like saying the Catholics have no right to the Vatican, to the Vatican and the yeah. Muslims have no right to Mecca and Medina. Yeah. Okay, uh, Herb in Northville, thanks very much uh, for the call and for the question. Let's go to Patrick in Detroit. Patrick, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning, Steve and Alan. I just wanted to say, free Palestine from the river to the sea. Well, I mean, that's the whole point. Wait, wait, I, I'm sorry, I mean, what did you You've say made that? the point very effectively. Nobody wants to end the occupation of the West Bank. That's not really the goal. The goal is to end Israel, and your caller, Patrick, just made that point I'm very sorry, I didn't hear exactly what but he said. Uh, what he said is free Palestine from the river to the sea, which means the Jordan River to the Mediterranean right, Sea. Right. That means Tel Aviv, right. Haifa, you know, well, all, I mean, of Jew, all of Jewish Israel. Yeah. The, the radicals like him want to free, which means want to turn into another Islamic state, which very likely would be quickly but, taken over by Hamas. Uh, which would work closely with the Muslim Brotherhood, and perhaps with al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. But let's be very clear. The, the, the ultimate goal of many Palestinians and many advocates of the Palestinian cause is, quote, Palestine must be free from the river to the sea. That means the end of Israel. But do, do, do you, you think that's... that, then you're... Huh? I mean, do you think that is that is what most? I mean, uh, most Palestinians I know, most people of uh, of Palestinian descent that I know don't believe in that. I mean, that that's like saying, uh, uh, you know, uh, most Israelis believe in wiping out uh, uh, the, the Palestinians. I mean, uh, these are well, extremists. I think there are a lot on both sides. Right? Yeah. who do believe that. I think there are Israelis who would like to see uh, Israel. Uh, take over the entire West Bank and, and Gaza Strip, and they're wrong. And I think there are a lot of Palestinians, including a lot in the leadership, and including, of course, Hamas, its whole policy. Its stated goal in its charter is there will not be a Jewish state even on a piece of land the size of a postage stamp. That point has been made over and over again. You're right that there are some Palestinian leaders, uh, Fayyad sure. used to be one, uh, who really do want to see two countries, two peoples living side by side. But if you take the BDS movement, for example, the Boycott, Divestment, Sanction movement, the founder of that movement has said he will not be satisfied until there is no Jewish presence anywhere uh, in the Middle East, that this is uh, Arab uh, uh, Muslim land, it's, Arab, it's Muslim waqf land, which under the Quran, at least the interpretation that some imams give it, uh, no leader is allowed to give away one inch of such land. So, you know, the extremists on both sides are having too much influence on the dialogue, and I'd like to see the debate move toward the center, toward a two-state solution. 
toward reasonable peace, and I think it's possible, yeah. but it, it will take a lot of work. Yeah. Okay, Alan Dershowitz, Emeritus Professor at Harvard Law School and author, also constitutional scholar. Uh, thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Yeah, and he will be at uh, Temple Bethel in Bloomfield Hills next Thursday, January 19th at 7.15 p.m. Uh, it's an open event to the public. It's a speech called Looking Ahead, What Do the Next Four Years Mean for American Jews and Our Relationship? with Israel. Uh, call 248-851-1100 for more information. All right, up next, there's only one man in the country who has won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary on the auto industry. We'll talk to him next.